Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome, welcome to it. Welcome to it. The Bible Geek. I'm your host, Robert F. Price. Robert F. Price. Host the Bible Geek. of Israel, and of course this was a pseudomograph, uh, he didn't write it, there's the incarnation of God, why in the specific, just an amazing book, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, host the Bible Geek, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, Price, host the Bible Geek. Yes, it's the long-lost Robert M. Price, uh, here for another Bible Geek. And uh, there are loads of questions to get to, going to do that in just a second, but uh, let me once again shamelessly hawk uh, my new book, Biblical Buddhism, which can be had for 15 bucks the copy, which includes uh, postage, and uh, you can just PayPal me the, the money at criticus at AOL.com. And uh, if you haven't yet, be sure to pick up, uh, be the first on your block to get Holy Fable Volume 3, uh, which is uh, the Epistles and the Apocalypse Undistorted by Faith. I guarantee you will find exegetical insights, and by no means only mine, that uh, you will not find in, in uh, most discussions, uh, neglected scholarship and so forth. And uh, Holy Fable Volume 4, Modern Scriptures Undistorted by Faith, is in the works, and it it won't be long now. Uh, That will uh, give the same sort of treatment, uh, criticism and commentary, to uh, the Gospel of Thomas, which, of course, was written in the 1st or 2nd century A.D. or C.E., but only became known again in the 1940s, and to most people a bit later than that. And uh, the uh, Secret Gospel of Mark, which purports to be a a first-century work, but uh, I think is probably a modern hoax, uh, though very interesting piece of work. And uh, then the Book of Mormon, not the whole thing, but certain interesting aspects and passages. And uh, beyond that, uh, there'll be the Aquarian Gospel um, of Levi... uh, uh, Dowling, and uh, that's uh, a channeled revelation from the Akashic Records, which makes it even more interesting to comment on. And uh, then uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, which I count as a modern gospel, and uh, that I got a line-by-line commentary on that one. Uh, then we uh, get into uh, other goodies like Lovecraft's Necronomicon and uh, the Testament of Jemmanuel, a kind of a weird UFO uh, harmony of the Gospels. 
And uh, some uh, new Pauline epistles that uh, I wrote to see if one could plausibly imagine what Paul might say to certain uh, issues that don't actually come up in the uh, in the New Testament. And a, uh, a unificationist gospel, which I wrote for the Unification Church, combining uh, Reverend Moon's uh, interesting insights between the lines of the gospels with some of the material in the gospels. All kinds of fun stuff. I know I'm leaving out something or other here, but uh, that, that should be a really interesting approach. I'm taking the usual critical, scholarly, analytical approach to these less familiar or works, or at least works not usually considered scripture. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, I uh, want to thank my Patreon supporters for, for their uh, generosity, and if you are not yet a Patreon supporter, any uh, pledged, I mean, it doesn't have to be mega bucks, will we'll certainly help us out here at Geek Central. And um, we're also uh, beginning, we just recorded the first uh, series of Heretics Anonymous online discussion groups with um, Carol, my wife, me, and uh, Anthony and Terry O'Donnell, who were veteran heretics from the old days at Montclair State, where we kick around a topic and uh, um, our uh, audience seems to be growing already in anticipation, and uh, we'll let you know how we're going to expand that more. There's a Heretics Anonymous website as well. Okay, let's get into some uh, some of these questions. Uh, this first one is from Mark. It says, Dear Pontifex Maximus of Bible Geekery, When I was in my early 20s, I read one of Eugene Peterson's books on pastoral theology. He made the statement that pastors have so much education about the Bible and theology that when laity ask tough questions, they can spin an answer. The answer doesn't necessarily have to be true or scholarly. It just has to satisfy the listeners. Uh, the audience expects an answer and saying, I don't know, uh, would be much more difficult to say. The statement struck me as so very true, and I've observed this in a variety of settings. Peterson was very prophetic, hallelujah. As a former insider, can you speak to your observations of your own tendencies, as well as others who served as leaders in the church to spin answers when, I don't know, uh, would have been more fitting? Um, this kind of reminds me of an old story about um, Unitarianism being very popular a couple of hundred years ago in the Church of England. Uh, the, the clergy who liked it and embraced it didn't go public about it uh, very willingly. Uh, they just sort of avoided certain topics, and the story went that this little old lady after church shaking hands uh, with the uh, the rector, and she says, you know, uh, Reverend so-and-so, I don't believe I've ever heard you give a sermon on the Trinity. And the, uh, the rector said, and you never will. Uh, well, uh, what, what do you answer? Uh, another thing that, uh, that I read once in a book uh, written back in the fundamentalist modernist controversy by, I think, uh, an Englishman, uh, he uh, was a liberal modernist, and uh, he said that the people that are 
eager to trap you and say, do you really believe in a uh, literal, personal second coming of Christ? Do you, do you actually believe in the Trinity? It's like they're giving him a litmus test, and this guy, uh, this writer said, who does this remind you of? Aren't these people, I mean, regardless of the validity of the issues and the opinions, aren't they really playing the role of the scribes and Pharisees in the Gospels? Uh, and when Jesus says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? I've always thought that was a, a pretty good uh, thing to keep in mind. Like, what are you doing here? Consider this. I know you're crusading for the faith once and for all delivered unto the saints, but are you becoming uh, like the interrogators of Jesus, trying to get him in trouble? Uh, uh, you ought to keep that in mind. Well, uh, I have... Um, not really had that problem as a pastor because the church I pastored was, uh, it was Harry Emerson Fosdick's first pastorate, uh, decades previous to me, uh, First Baptist Church of Montclair, which is now defunct. Um, they, uh, had a, uh, a heritage of, uh, liberal modernist theology and preaching, uh, which, you know, must have been the case if Harry Emerson Fosdick was in the pulpit. And when he was, when he first got there and people heard his preaching, there was a crisis in the congregation, and some of them just did not like that kind of thing. They wanted the old-time religion. But uh, the majority, I guess, got behind Fosdick, and they settled it. Yeah, First Baptist of Montclair is going to be a, a open, theologically open, uh, modernist church. Even though uh, to be a liberal Protestant in those days... Now, that was a big difference, you know, the difference from fundamentalism, but it's not like it is today. It had not become pure left-wing politics. Uh, it had not become simple uh, secular humanism with a few religious trappings. Uh, it, it was theology, and there was real concern with the Bible, and uh, unlike today, in my opinion. So uh, uh, they they decided on they plotted their course by the north star of liberal modernism. Well, in by the time decades later, uh, I started attending that church. The pastor uh, Don Morris, a really unique uh, figure who who just retired from the Methodist ministry after he was my pastor. Uh, some few years later, he switched denominations. Um, he was, uh, he was an, a unique combination of uh, neo-orthodoxy and an old-time religion with a lot of philosophy and Kierkegaard thrown in, uh, social gospel stuff, but uh, really an amazing uh, man. And uh, this attracted me, and I took his place when he left First Baptist. Um, by then, the congregation had a few fundamentalists in it, uh, one of them at least kind of a troublemaker, but on the whole, they were sort of used to Don's 
unusual hybridized approach and uh, they the, several of the congregants had been to seminary and were only going to this church because it was theologically literate and and sophisticated they had a like a colloquium on tolstoy with tolstoy's daughter there uh, to speak all kinds of neat stuff uh, so they they were sort of used to a different approach uh, i preached from the Bible most of the time, occasionally the Gospel of Thomas or one thing or another, but I certainly was happy to preach from biblical texts, but I wasn't cheerleading for any particular theology and nobody expected me to. In fact, other than one or two people, I wouldn't have been able to tell you what most of my congregants believed. Uh, I wouldn't have bet on them, on, on some of them being theists at all, but I didn't know. Uh, and I, I loved that. I, I thought we can have open discussion on these issues. We're informed about the religious issues, the Bible, or the theology, but we're not stuck with anything. Uh, and we don't promote or adhere to a party line. I love that. Uh, I thought, in effect, what you had was... Uh, a model of church analogous to that of the disciples with Jesus before there was a church per se. Here are a bunch of guys following uh, Jesus who had all of these um, surprising and thought-provoking and mystifying things to say, and instead of, you better believe me, are you going to go to hell? He said, well, there's a little of that, but uh, he, he mainly said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or he would preface a parable with, what do you think? Uh, this is more Socratic. And uh, I thought, yeah, that's what we have here. And I, I thought it was just great. So I didn't really have to do, do this. A uh, few people ever asked for uh, theological or biblical answers to anything, and I didn't hide my uh, ultra-critical approach. I was always quoting Bultmann, Tillich, Schleiermacher, Derrida, and so on. Uh, nobody minded, and um, it was all pretty straightforward. Now, I had Bible study groups where we, uh, you know, people might have questions, but uh, there was no danger in giving them an honest scholarly answer. Uh, and and uh, it, it, it was almost also not a question of saying, I don't know. Rather, there was the uncertainty of scholarship. Well, some say this, some say that about this, this thing in the Bible, that uh, you cannot know just because you might want to be dogmatic doesn't mean you have the right to be. So I uh, was lucky not to have that kind of inquisitorial thing, and thus the need to pacify people with whatever might uh, satisfy them. This kind of thing has driven a lot of pastors nuts, uh, pastors that were becoming more free-thinking and, and uh, perhaps even unbelieving, but their livelihood depended on uh, staying as the pastor of, of such a church. Uh, they're in a real bind, right? Uh, you, you think, well, it's, it's not, you don't have any integrity if you're not uh, telling them exactly what you think. That's true, but you got a family to feed. Uh, what are you going to do? You can't just pull up stakes. I mean, you, you might indeed try another denomination or something, but that's by no means easy. So I have a lot of uh, sympathy for, for uh, 
clergy like that. And um, the I think the Freedom From Religion Foundation, it was, who started a what they call the Clergy Project to help ministers in a position like that to transition to some other type of job. And that is really a great idea. Uh, but uh, I've uh, I've not had that happen. I can imagine uh, as as a teacher in a um, Baptist college in the South, which I was for about five years, having people, uh, students who were evangelicals and fundamentalists, asking questions within the box of their theology, and it involved no compromise to say, well, most evangelicals understand it this way, uh, without making it sound like this was my view, because there, some people are interested in the Bible as a text for their religion, not, not an, ac- an object of academic study, and they want to know what does our essentially they wouldn't know to put it this way but they're saying uh, according to our system how does this bible passage fit in uh like uh say you're in a assemblies of god church or a wesleyan church and somebody says uh, geez uh, pastor i was reading in romans here and boy this sure sounds like predestination uh, are we wrong about that well the the honest uh, way to answer would be um well there's a lot of interpretations of almost any verse in the bible which is the truth unvarnished, right? And uh, the way our tradition has always understood this is thus and so. But of course, others understand it differently. Because you'd be lying to them if you just said, oh yeah, I got it right here, right in my pocket, the definitive one and only interpretation. So that might be a way to go. You're satisfying them in a way, but you're not lying to them. You're not even implicitly deceiving them, right? In, I took the same approach doing a catechism class in our church, which ordinarily you, you wouldn't have in a Baptist church. But I, I said to the, the, the teenagers who were doing this with me, I'm not telling you what to believe. That's up to you, but you should know the tradition uh, in which you stand. You may agree with it, you may not, but let's not be ignorant of it. It's up to you, but here it is. I don't think there is any kind of compromise involved in that, and I think the same is true with answering Bible questions. And uh, so I hope that helps a bit. Uh, Mark has another question, though. He says, in the depictions of the crucifixion in Mark and Matthew, why are Jesus' cries to Eloi and Eli, it's Eloi in um, Mark and uh, Eli in uh, in Matthew, misheard by onlookers. What purpose does this detail serve in the narrative? I've read about a common belief that Elijah might return at dire moments to comfort the afflicted. Okay, this explains why the men in the crowd might expect Elijah, or, or think Jesus is calling on him for help in a desperate hour, but it seems like an odd detail to include. Uh, Let's see here. This is really interesting. 
Why is the word different between Matthew and Mark? Mark has Jesus say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As I'm sure you know, uh, text says so. Uh, this is Aramaic for the opening line of uh, the uh, 22nd Psalm, a psalm used uh, by or on behalf of somebody who was in big trouble and is desperate for an 11th hour deliverance by God. And Jesus is certainly depicted in that situation, right? So actually, it's difficult to say whether people say, oh, this is a cry of despair. Well, it might be, but if he's quoting Psalm 22, it, it winds up being a statement of hope against uh, all odds. So is he supposed to be understood as uh saying boy what a mistake i made god like at the end of uh of uh what is it uh old woody allen movie uh, he has a oh boy i can't believe i've forgotten the name of it he uh and some others are in uh prison and they're sentenced to death but an angel appears to him if i remember this right and says don't worry about it uh you'll be delivered tomorrow oh man that's great is love and death is that it possibly uh, but instead uh they all get killed and you see uh, the scene ripped off from bergman's the seventh seal where the grim reaper is leading the dead in a kind of a dance on the horizon and the voiceover has woody say what can i say i got screwed uh is that what jesus is saying well that's a big issue right there um it, it i get the impression luke did not like that that he may have understood jesus is still calling on god in hope because he gets the whole psalm reference but he doesn't expect that his readers will get it so he omits that and instead chooses something from is it psalm 63 but a different psalm at any rate where uh into your hands i commit my spirit nobody's going to take that as a cry of despair so he changes it well, so does Matthew, but why? Well, he he doesn't like the Aramaic. He'd rather have Hebrew because Matthew was almost certainly a scribe, and he specialized in the, uh, the scholarly uh, Hebrew language, the, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Mark might have been getting his from some Targum or some uh, Aramaic translation. But uh, Eloi is Aramaic for my God, but that's not the way it sounds in Hebrew. It's uh, it's Eli or Eli, as we would pronounce it. And uh, why did Matthew change that? Well, it could be just that he prefers the Hebrew Bible. But you also have to wonder if uh, he realizes, had Jesus said Eli, Eloi, would anybody on the scene have thought he meant to call Elijah? Hmm, might be a stretch. So uh, Matthew figures, well, if he's calling uh, Eli or uh, Eli, whatever, uh, somebody could think he's calling Elijah because that's got the same prefix, right? Uh, Elijah means uh, my God uh, is Yahweh. Uh, that's the, the you can break the name down easily into that the ja ending of any of these names is uh the, the um it's using as a suffix 
the f- prefix of Yahweh, and uh, and the first Eli or Eli means my God. So my God is Yahweh. So yeah, he says that's imaginable, that's plausible. But Mark's version, I don't know. Let's change it to what makes a bit more sense to the to the Jewish reader anyway. Uh, so, uh, why is that in there? Well, I think because, uh, Mark was probably the first one to fashion a coherent narrative of, uh, the passion of Jesus and so on. Uh, and he used various Old Testament references that, that were not prophecies. They were not predictions of anything, but they, he thought they had, and a lot of Christians, because we see them in, in other works as well, uh, thought that, uh, with the eye of faith, you could see a kind of a hidden reference to, uh, Jesus and his, uh, his fate. And, uh, I mean, they, they didn't think Psalm 22 was a literal prediction of Jesus on the cross, uh, that anybody should have seen that. No, they were like the Dead Sea Scrolls folks that saw a hidden meaning that applied to a much more important thing than the original was about. In this case, the sacrificial death of Christ. So they have the, uh, the among other things, well, if you look at uh, Mark's crucifixion account as a whole, you find a bunch of these things. When it says that Jesus' uh, hecklers were wagging their heads, what the heck? Well, that phrase comes right out of uh, Psalm 22 and various other things. Uh, they parted my garments among them. These He filled in the most skeletal of ideas of Jesus' death with bits of scripture, not historical memory. So that's why it's in there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, but Matthew, but now, now he doesn't say, right? Mark does not say, aha, you see, this was how the prophecy was fulfilled. He, he's not drawing attention to the Old Testament origins. He just used bits and pieces of Old Testament texts to create a new narrative. Matthew probably left it in there because he does think that these things were predictions in some way, though he doesn't actually say it. He doesn't explicitly draw attention to um Psalm 22 is the source. I'm just guessing that given what he does elsewhere with Old Testament passages where he does say, thus was the scripture fulfilled that this had to happen out of Egypt, I've called my son, etc. So we don't know that. That's just my speculation. But here is the weirdest and yet perhaps to me most compelling theory that of all places uh, I've only found in the Aquarian gospel that I mentioned earlier that uh, this, uh, what, I guess early 20th century channeled work by uh, Leo, or, or as he called himself, Levi Dowling, in his uh, uh, version of the crucifixion, Jesus is calling uh, Helios the sun, because it's the same in Greek uh, as uh, uh, Elijah is a sort of an anglicization of the Hebrew, um, Eliyahu, but uh, but, uh, in Greek it would be Elias or Helias. And uh, so Dowling figured that, hey, 
what uh, suppose this had to do with the darkening of the sun during the crucifixion and Jesus is calling for the return of sunlight which of course does happen i have to admit that is just too good not to be true uh, so who knows but i have a hunch that uh, that is in there and that it may be a survival of some kind of pagan basis for it uh, the uh, that uh, jesus invoked and then dispelled the darkness much as elijah did with uh, the rain well who knows what interesting stuff to uh, to figure on uh, last question, Mark says, what is the theme song to the Bible, Geek? It sure sounds like Rush, but I don't recognize the song. Well, uh, our uh, master of music has kind of deconstructed the Rush song I used to use in the early days as the theme, uh, namely uh, Tom Sawyer. And so there's some of that in there, but he sort of... Uh, done with uh, with that song, what Mark did with the Old Testament. So, and then for a while, of course, we used Highway to Hell by uh, ACDC. I wonder if there's ever been a Christian rock group that called themselves BCAD. I uh, almost have to think there was. If not, there should have been. Okay, dear master of the Grand Lodge of Free and Accepted Geeks, you guys are getting to be like Lovecraft with the elaborate um, salutations. This is Christian uh, Larocque. He says, I've been interested in the Freemasons and have read several books on the subject, including some of Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma. The Masons suggest that they are the progenitors of the ancient mean the heirs of the ancient mystery schools and have the right interpretation of the biblical stories. Albert Pike gives a clue about how the biblical story should be understood, starting with the names of Bible characters, which give a clue as to what the respective characters represent. For example, the design of Solomon's temple with its specific furniture cha and chambers is thought to represent the physiological makeup of man's of man and man's consciousness. I know we're in the twilight zone. Uh, I'm interested to know your thoughts uh, about Freemasonry, and if you find that the Bible stories, like those in the Old Testament, have a ritualistic significance and meaning. Personally, I believe uh, if there is really a meaningful understanding of the B Bible stories, there is a really uh, I would look to the Masons before any other group. I don't mean simply uh, finding good moral ideas in the Bible. I mean finding sacred symbolism and rituals hiding within the text. What say you? Well, um, I think that uh, a great book to read on this would be The Gate of Heaven by Margaret Barker, which goes extensively into the symbolism of the temple reading it against ancient sources and uh it's and and she has figured out what just about everything in the descriptions of the temple mean uh, and how some of it seems kind of mysterious to us because uh some of the uh beliefs and cosmology and all that to which these 
symbols in the temple design refer have been edited out of elsewhere in the Bible, except for little hints here and there, uh, that uh, the, the furnishings of the temple are a, a kind of a symbolic representation of the cosmos as they viewed it. This, the bronze sea was supposed to be the tahome, the, the uh, ocean depth out of which the earth emerged in Genesis. And uh, the uh, the um, lampstand with the seven branches and the so-called seven eyes, uh, these are the seven planets then known. Uh, and uh, and there's a lot of other stuff like this, that she, the cherubim, etc., etc., the pillars, Boaz and Jacob. She's really done her homework on this, and I would think you don't really need any other book but that on that. So, The Gate of Heaven um, by Margaret Barker. And uh, that is not kooky Twilight Zone exegesis. It, it's she's looked at ancient sources, uh, and uh, it, it, she's not like using it as a ventriloquist dummy. Now, this business about the the temple representing the human body, uh, I think that is a kind of allegorical interpretation that ancient mystagogues did use in the great declaration of Simon Magus, whether he actually wrote it or not, but I don't see why not. Uh, there, there is uh, an explanation blow by blow of the Garden of Eden and its description in Genesis as being about human physiology. Philo treats the Bible that way. Uh, much later, you know, many centuries later, Emanuel Swedenborg and uh, Charles Fillmore, founder of the Unity School of Christianity, they do the same kind of thing. And they are in continuity with these ancient mystery religions, at least Gnosticism and uh, Philonic Judaism, and they may be dependent on their works, because some some of the Theosophists, for instance, like uh, G.R.S. Mead, was incredibly erudite and very well read on all these ancient sources. That doesn't necessarily mean that they stand in direct continuity with some sort of apostolic succession. Uh, there's a lot of claims today that uh, this and that reading of the Bible or this and that spiritual technique are the constitute the wisdom of the ancient mystery schools. Well, that depends on who you're talking about. I mean, the Gnostics, yes, there were certainly esoteric societies there. Uh, Judaism in the Hellenistic world had become a mystery religion. And there were initiation religions, which is what a mystery religion means. You get taught the secrets once you're in the club. But I remain unpersuaded that we know as much about some of these things, like claims made to have the secret doctrine of the Egyptians in the time of the pharaohs. I, I don't think that survives. I think somebody's – and I think this is kind of what the Freemasons have done. Uh, they, they're claiming an older – pedigree than they deserve, that I suspect a lot of what they're selling as uh, as the esoteric wisdom of the ages is really a kind of modern thing, just the same way Wicca says that they're passing on these ancient traditions when it's very clear they're not, uh, that they've made up a lot of this stuff, and some of them will even admit it, and uh, 
this isn't intended as a criticism of anything they say. It's just to note that the the genre of pseudepigrapha is uh, alive and well. Uh, so the uh, I think the the Masons their view of. Uh, what Solomon was doing building the temple, of course, in my view, that's out of the question because there was no Solomonic temple and uh, so forth. Uh, but uh, even if it's fictive, the designs given in the Bible are symbolic. But I'm really doubtful that some people's modern takes on it represent the ancient belief. Um, like... Um, Fundamentalists like Plymouth Brethren will give you a detailed allegorical reading of the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and say, well, this represents Christ's divine nature and this represents his human nature. Uh, they'll uh, decode the Passover as referring to Jesus. I, I personally cannot imagine they're right about that. But uh, allegory always is a matter of what's in the eye of the beholder. So the Masons are doing the kind of things some of the ancient esoteric groups did. But um, my guess is that uh, they've uh, they've basically reinvented a wheel. Uh, so um, once uh, I was at an atheist group out in Detroit, I think we were talking about all the stuff and. Uh, what the Masons, you know, the, what are they really like? Are they just like Ralph Cramden's Raccoon Lodge, as I kind of suspect? Or do they really have some kind of secrets, whether ancient or modern? And because uh, they have all these degrees of initiation. And uh, somebody there said that, uh, that, no, I guess I said that I, I had heard that the 32nd degree of in, uh, initiation, they revealed to you that uh, Jesus and Satan are the same guy. Uh, I said, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I've heard this. And somebody there said, well, it damn well better be something big if if you got to go through that many steps of initiation. So, yeah, be pretty disappointing. But there's this kind of thing like est in some of these things, even in the ancient mysteries. Now, get ready. Uh, now that you've passed through the veil and been baptized and had the sacred meal, we're going to show you the big revelation. Oh, boy, I can't wait. And then they draw back the curtain, and it's an era corn because of Demeter and Persephone and all this stuff. Well, you're supposed to say, oh, uh, yeah, that is really great because it's like cognitive dissonance. You've been through all of this effort. What, are you going to give up now and say, what the hell? Uh, wh what is this? Uh, yeah, I'm getting out of here. Uh, no, nah, you're going to feel like an idiot if you did that. Uh, so you have to say, oh, yes, yes. Uh, praise the gods and and you have to even think that it is some big deal even though it isn't reminds me of when uh, Werner Airhead uh, Earhart uh, used to say to initiates uh, at the end of an est seminar uh, he'd say uh, did you get it and a lot of them would say oh yes yes I did and uh, and the disappointed ones would say no I didn't get it and he says yes you did because there was nothing there to get <laughs> Okay, talk about making virtue of necessity. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not Christian. That's Tyler Williams. I thought this next thing was a 
new paragraph of the same question. If this now is Christian uh, Lorog, I'm sorry about that, Tyler and Christian. Okay, that was Tyler. This is Christian. How large were the stones covering ancient sepulcher tombs? I've seen pictures and documentaries showing they were mostly only large enough to slide a very slim body into, not this huge cavernous opening most people visualize, which would make it easier to believe a small stone uh, was tossed aside and uh, and to allow for the body to be stolen or you know or you could say to see that it wasn't stolen or whatever well uh, i don't know um I have heard people say that their archaeological evidence indicates at least some of them did have broad grooves cut into the stone so that a big flat round stone could be um, wheeled uh, away from or in front of the opening. I I don't know. Uh, I'm not in any kind of archaeologist, but I have heard that described. I have more recently heard that, no, they were big, round boulders. They were not flat, and they had to be pushed to the mouth of it. I don't know. I, I don't, uh, I'm not all that interested in that, so I've never taken the trouble to look it up. But it's worth noting that uh, the evangelists in the New Testament certainly pictured it as being a, a heck of a big stone that had to be rolled. Again, whether it was flat or or, or spherical it doesn't really say uh, but um, the it does say, like the the women coming to the tombs say uh, well um, who's going to move the stone for us because uh, I mean there's several of them but the, even at that they figure we got to get some help uh, what are we doing one of them probably said well let's just cross that bridge when we come to it and then sure enough it's already open but that seems to imply a pretty big stone uh, but no doubt there were smaller ones and so on again i here's a place where i don't mind saying i don't know uh, interesting question though okay bob sidensticker oh veteran bible geek you know how you can separate the Pentateuch into four sources? I wonder if you can do something similar with the Gospels. Uh, on previous episodes, you've pointed out individual verses within the Gospels containing uh, uh, not traditionally Christian philosophies, such as Gnosticism, Marcionism, Apocalypticism, and so on. I imagine you can also find verses that could support a lot of heresies as well. Uh, can a heresy gain traction if it doesn't have at least a few verses to support it? Let me pause there and say um, Ernst Kesemann, one of the most brilliant disciples of Bultmann, was asked by the World Council of Churches to write a paper to be presented there uh, called uh, I think the Canon of the New Testament and the Unity of the Church. And he right off the bat says, gee, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but the canon is the basis for the disunity of the church because there are various viewpoints that clash with one another, uh, forcing us to discern the spirits, as Paul says, even in the New Testament canon. And he says every sect can claim uh, a greater or lesser plot of ground in the New Testament 
development uh, to, you know, to, to build on, exactly as you're saying here. Okay. Um, I'm not talking about misinterpreting verses or taking them out of context, but picking out verses that honestly do appear to have origins in these heretical philosophies. The result, I imagine, would be a handful of verses that would make a Gnostic take on Jesus, another handful to make a Marcionite version, maybe a Docetic version, and so on. Uh, yes, that is uh, certainly true, in my opinion. Let me give you a, a less controversial example that I think is nonetheless a good one. Years, decades ago, maybe it was centuries ago, uh, at uh, while a good friend of mine and I were going to Montclair State College, uh, he uh, was talking with a friend he worked with who was a Seventh-day Adventist, and my friend was a Baptist. And they're debating, you know, what else but the uh, the question of what day should you worship on. And uh, the Adventist, of course, thought it was the Sabbath, which is Saturday. I mean, there's no question about that. In the Old Testament, Sabbath means seventh, right? So the Saturday was the Sabbath, the, the day to worship or to rest, etc. But uh, uh, most Christians combine the Sabbath with the Lord's Day, which was the day of celebrating the resurrection, the discovery of the empty tomb, Sunday, right? And uh, so uh, who's right in this? Well, uh, the uh, the uh, Adventists said, look, in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says, whoever negates the least of these commandments will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the Sabbath is not even a little one. Uh, so certainly we got to keep the Sabbath. And uh, my friend, the Baptist, said, yeah, but in Colossians, Paul says, don't let anybody tell you you have to keep all these Jewish regulations from the Torah. And that means we don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore, surely. Well, uh, nobody won this argument because they were both right. I think, But the, the, the argument wouldn't end because they both made the false assumption that all Bible writers agree, all Bible writings agree, and of course, as you know well enough, uh, they do not. Uh, and that's the same with uh, with all these heresies and so on. Um, there are Gnostic-leaning verses, like I think the uh, Gospel of John is full of Gnosticism and Marcionism, which were related but not quite the same thing, when um, it says in the prologue that no one has ever seen God what about Moses and Elijah and Nadab and Abihu and uh, Aaron and, and all these guys? I mean, it flat out says Moses used to converse with God face to face in the tent of meeting like one man talks to another. What about that? Right? Uh, and it seems pretty clear to me that's Marcionism. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. People talked to and saw Jehovah. But Jesus is the representative of a hitherto unknown deity, uh, the, the father of Jesus Christ. Uh, so nobody has seen him or, or another one in Matthew and Luke 
where Jesus says, um, no one knows the Father but the Son and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal him. Well, wait a minute. You're saying Moses, Elijah, David, they didn't know God? Well, what were they? Who were they getting messages from? And all well, the Demiurge, it wasn't the father of Jesus. It was, Second Corinthians says, the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers to the uh, hidden meaning of the text they're reading. Uh, I think that's, even the idea of Jesus giving his life a ransom for many, nobody in the early church had any meaningful explanation of that except the Marcionites, that the creator had the title to all the people he had created, but uh, the father of Jesus Christ, who had not created the human race, but was more merciful uh, and judged no one, uh, he was willing to uh, to adopt the 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 humans the creator made to to be his children but he had to pay the price for it and that's how jesus redeemed uh or ransomed these people for his god i mean i, I uh, you you're probably familiar with all the wacky uh theories that uh, i mean that one's odd enough i grant but these other ones they, they all have insurmountable problems that's the only one that makes uh, sense to me. And there there are things that seem to imply docetism, especially in the Gospel of John. And uh, the, the uh, New Testament we have was kind of a compromised document, like the documents of Vatican II. You can find conflicting views in them, but if they if somebody didn't find their opinion there, they wouldn't have signed on, so let's put it in there, even if uh, this other party's uh, principles are in there a few pages later uh, so you can both appeal to the the thing you're just kicking the can down the road rather than making a decision well that's what the uh, canonizers of the New Testament did and and it was soon a moot point because most people of course did not have private copies of the Bible you're just talking about a very limited circle of clergy and scribes and so forth and uh, they produced theological re-readings of passages to uh, blunt the, uh, the the theological or heretical edges, and we have kind of in, inherited those uh, strained interpretations today. Oh, it may look like it says that, but no, it doesn't really mean that. Uh, how do we know? Well, because the traditional creed says so. Uh, Gee, I, I, I thought uh, we got the creed from the Bible. <laughs> well, not really. Okay, uh, let's see, uh, back to uh, to the question uh, from Bob. Can you point me to a source that has done this teasing out of the various incompatible ideas within the Gospels? Um, that's the obvious way that occurs to me that you can see the Gospels from another angle, but perhaps I'm missing something. Are there other ways to pull apart the Gospels to show how they were put together? Well, there is classical source criticism, uh, and the still predominant view, and the view I hold, uh, not because not it's the majority view, but because uh, I find it convincing but who knows is the uh, the the two document hypothesis also called the four source hypothesis that mark uh, was the first to write a narrative gospel q uh, was a 
kind of a book of Proverbs by Jesus, a list of sayings, kind of like the Gospel of Thomas. No real narrative. These were the two earliest sources. Uh, Matthew and Luke independently combined both of them, leaving out some material in each. Uh, And uh, then the Gospel of John either made use of oral traditions that sometimes paralleled those collected in Mark, Q, and even in the uniquely Matthean and Lucan material, or uh, John's gospel actually did use the other gospels, but rewrote them in a much freer way. You can tell that among the synoptics, so-called, because it means they kind of share the same perspective, they're so similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can tell there is literary interdependence there because uh, so much of it is in all these three Gospels is verbatim the same, something you wouldn't really find if if all of them were simply uh, separate uh, collections of oral tradition, as some used to argue. Um, there, Somebody is copying from somebody, and the debate is over who's first and who used them. Uh, and uh, But in John, it remains an open question because though it kind of looks like he's using, uh, sometimes correcting uh, the earlier Gospels and must have known of them, he doesn't, he's not that slavish in preserving the wording, if he is, so we're not sure whether he is or not. Uh, but uh, if I may uh, engage again in shameless self-promotion, the second volume of my uh, holy fable, The Gospels and Acts Undistorted by Faith, does go into this in some pretty good detail as to uh, Marcionite, anti-Marcionite, Gnostic, and other elements in the Gospels and uh, and in the the because I don't just, you know, present the text, I analyze it, it's sort of a running commentary. So I would uh, suggest checking that out. Uh, there may be other ones that do it, I'm, I'm not sure. Ooh, let's see. Ooh, this is long. Um, wow, let's see, let me... No. When does this end and something else starts? I think perhaps I have lost the name. Boy, I'm so careful about that these days. I don't know how I would have done it. Um, uh, But let me at least polish off some of these questions. Uh, Please feel free to use your Billy Graham impersonation as you see fit. It is hands down my favorite. Not far behind is the bumbling general disciples impersonation. Gee, Lord. But the Billy Graham one always makes me laugh. Um, Carol told me recently that uh, the times are coming, and as John's Gospel would say, uh, is already here, when a lot of listeners will not even know who Billy Graham was. Uh, and so what the heck bother, why bother with this, uh, this impression? Well, I can still do it because... Let's face it, it doesn't really sound like Billy Graham. It's just like a, you know, an evangelistic preacher in general. Uh, so I figure I can get by sliding on that excuse. But I think she's right. Soon people are going to know, who's he imitating? Okay. Um, uh, 
Could you speak to what led to your atheistic stance? In that, I'm curious to know what happened to your thought process from fundamentalist Christian to liberal Christian to an atheist. Perhaps what particularly stopped making sense of the Bible, early Christian practices compared to today, I'm sure you get the idea. I myself was a fundamentalist for the better part of 15 years. My journey into Christianity began a long time ago. Growing up in America, you cannot swing a dead cat without hitting a church. My grandparents on my mother's side were or are charismatic, and my mother took me to church on and off growing up. Later, she became more committed prior to my formal entry into the religion. My actual entry into Christianity happened when I was in Iraq from 2003 to 2004. Death finally became a hard reality, and with only Christianity in the background of my upbringing, the notion of hell scared me into saying the sinner's prayer and starting on my journey. Over time, I studied various works from evangelical authors and kept learning more about this religion. Initially, I knew nothing, but eventually made my way to Calvinism. After some time, the notion that Yahweh is randomly sending people to hell for his glory's sake really turned me off, and I found it extremely bizarre considering all of the admonitions to love and forgive others. I experimented with other brands, that is, I read what non-Calvinist authors had to say of Christianity before I finally became disillusioned with the whole idea. On a podcast in 2017, you mentioned a colleague of yours, um... Uh, who also became disillusioned after realizing fundamentalists cannot seem to come to an agreement on what the gospel actually is. That was my friend Tim Grogan. Uh, I seem to have followed his same footsteps. Within the last year, I finally broke down and started to read books on evolution and what atheists had to say regarding Christianity. It was a breath of fresh air to see my doubts were not unfounded. What did me in was that I could not pin down what it meant to be a Christian. If someone asked me what the original Christian church looked like and believed, I would have no idea. I do not believe I have actually heard you articulate what made you stop believing in the Christian God, and perhaps you could expand on what you mean by stating you are an atheist. Are you a strong atheist positing that there is no God, or a weak atheist who does not know if there's anything out there but finds the religions posited by religious institutions to be lacking? In previous podcasts, other listeners have stated they were atheists, but spoke of the holy, the ineffable, etc. You also stated Bultmann carried this idea, but I'm not quite sure what this is a reference to. Is it merely speaking in the abstract of the mystery of existence, or the idea that there may be something out there, but perhaps it's just beyond human understanding? Um... Okay, uh, there seem to be some discrepancies in the Bible regarding what happens to those unfortunate souls who perish without repenting, or in my case and yours, those who have walked away from the faith. I'm aware we're dealing with probabilities, and that being the case, what seems to be the most prevalent idea of the fate of the unfortunate after death according to the Bible? Eternal torment? Annihilation? Universalism? I give this about a... 0.01% probability, or something else. 
Um, my last question, and perhaps the one that gives me the most frustration, is understanding the genesis of Christianity. Um, I can understand how most religions got off the ground. That is, ancient people attempting to understand what they observe. Over time, these basic principles evolve into more sophisticated ideas, and that is not too strange to understand. What I do not understand uh, is how uh, something like Christianity gets off the ground, especially if Jesus was a myth. From my understanding, it was expensive to produce written documents in ancient times, so I'm perplexed why anyone would sit down and start rewriting Old Testament stories into new stories. I believe this is your viewpoint, but I never heard it flushed out. What would be the reasoning? I just do not understand the psychology of it. Why go th through all the trouble? Um, what do you believe they were getting after? Uh, granted, I have trouble understanding ancient thinking patterns in general from a religious standpoint. Why anyone would subject themselves and others to aesthetic, uh, I think I mean ascetic, living in an already difficult world is beyond my understanding. Could you expand upon this and explain how you believe it all got started? With only cursory knowledge of what was happening around this time, I have trouble framing the whole concept and would love to hear you expand on it. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Uh, what uh, led me away from it? Uh, well, let me just uh, elaborate a little bit on uh, the Tim Grogan reference of my friend who was exceedingly sharp and uh, went from one type of evangelical Christianity to the next. He was a fundamentalist, a Pentecostal, a Calvinist, an Arminian, um, one thing after another. And uh, he, uh, of course, would decide what creed to follow based on how well he thought they checked out with the Bible, assuming the Bible had a unitary teaching, who was able to make the most sense of the most passages. I think he would probably have put it that way. And he thought eventually, well, I guess the Calvinists, uh, you know, they're, they're really, like you said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would have would not perish but have eternal life. Wait a minute. Calvinism says that he didn't die for the whole human race, but only for the predestined elect. Where, where do you get that? And so on. But what finally, the straw that broke the camel's back was this big debate at Dallas Seminary, some years ago now, I don't know where it stands today, over exactly what the evangelical gospel is. Um, do you have to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or only as Savior? Because, uh, you know, for decades and decades, fundamentalists, evangelicals have said the two interchangeably, as if they mean the same thing. But somebody pointed out, well, there's a bit of a different nuance, and maybe it's not really just a nuance. Uh, what are you, aren't you adding something to Savior if you say Lord and Savior? Uh, and doesn't that have to mean you are now going to obey Jesus to do all the stuff he said to do? And uh, otherwise, you know, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say?
Um, yeah, a good question. Lord, in what sense? Right. So uh, if you say you've got to accept Jesus as your Lord, as well as your Savior, meaning that he died and rose for you and uh, you can believe in him and be saved. Aren't you saying that simple faith is not enough, that good works are necessary uh, for salvation? You are pledging to obey your Lord Jesus, but suppose you start welching on it. I mean, that's kind of what Arminians say, right? Uh, that uh, you're, you're backsliding and you're going to lose your salvation. Isn't that what you, you're stuck with if you believe that Jesus must be accepted as Lord as well as Savior? I know you don't mean that, but it's only because you, you haven't thought it through clearly. If you do, you realize that if salvation is by grace through faith, you cannot make obeying Jesus uh, a criterion for salvation. That's a, that's a question of sanctification, becoming in reality what God sees you as because of the atonement of Christ. Oh boy, uh, the people that say, no, no, Lord and Savior, or else you're talking about what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. You're getting a free ticket to heaven. Uh, that's that's not serious. Uh, you, you've got to make a, a repent and be saved. That means you're going to have different behavior. It's not salvation by works. Oh yeah, why isn't it? And so on. Again, I don't know where the stands Today, but this was enough for Tim. He says, wait a minute. For Pete's sake, you can't even say what the, you can't agree on what the gospel is. Okay, I, I'm out of this uh, game. Uh, forget it. And I think he had a pretty good point. So uh, this is not what happened to me. Uh, rather, I uh, found that uh, biblical authority just did not make sense. You could do all of the rabbinical and Kabbalistic attempts to iron out problems in the Bible uh, and, and its teaching, and you, you couldn't really do it. You, you had to say, well, you know how they always say, oh, you interpret the less clear passages of the Bible in light of the more clear. Of course, all that means is the ones that don't fit your theology, you pretend that they do. If you don't like what James says because you prefer what Paul says, well, you just use James as a ventriloquist dummy and pretend that he said what Paul said. Oh, yeah, you know, if you could call him up and ask him, James would probably say, yeah, boy, I, I, I've always thought I should have put that differently. <laughs> you can't say that if you're saying that the authority of the Bible lies in the surface, plain sense of it. I mean, the whole Reformation was based on the idea that you cannot read secret meanings into or out of the Bible. You got to read it like you would read any other book, because if you don't, it's becoming a ventriloquist dummy and you don't even need the Bible. You just say what's true. Uh, and so it occurred to me, this just does not work. The idea of the Bible is an inspired answer book. Just as bad, there was the notion that... Uh, if you could not pretty much establish, even prove that Jesus existed, he rose from the dead, and he claimed to be God or the Son of God, it was just arbitrary. Your your faith was just a, an irresponsible leap of faith. Now, of course, there are 
presuppositionalist apologists would say, well, yes, it is, but everybody's inevitably going to do that one way or the other. Like um, William James said, it's it's a forced choice. You're going to live one way with at least implicit beliefs or the other. You, you can't really be neutral. A lot of postmodernism says that too. Uh, but uh, most apologists have always said, no, no, I, you, you can wind up in the arms of Jim Jones as easily as Jesus if you take a leap against all reason. No, we got to be able to say that, uh, yeah, this is the way to go. It's only a step of faith, a reasonable faith. It's not uh, a wild leap of faith. And uh, I, I figured, well, that's probably good. I mean, that's close to empiricism in a way, right? That you're going to go with the evidence. And so you get all these apologetics, uh, who moved the stone, uh, history and Christianity, the New Testament documents, are they reliable? And I read that stuff, I think, when I was still in high school. And I thought, oh boy, this is great. But it began to produce doubt because I realized that embracing apologetics, I had moved on from uh, what I thought was the Rock of Gibraltar to a bog and a swamp, because now I was uh, basing my faith on probabilistic arguments. Even if you say, oh yeah, it's 90% sure that Jesus rose from the dead, that's not quite enough. I mean, you know, odd things against probability have happened. Uh, how do I know the disciples didn't steal the body or it was a case of mistaken identity on Easter or whatever? And that tormented me. And I realized, of course, I found out later that the theologians had dealt with this for a long time. Martin Kaler, Wilhelm Hermann, Tillich, and others saying that uh, you can't, Kierkegaard, that you, you can't have faith uh, that it's all going to come out, you know, vindicating your view and maintain the honest, open-endedness of a genuine researcher. It's got to be one or the other. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I just cannot do that. I, I'm at the crossroads. I've got to go with uh, responsible, scholarly thinking, uh, and I can't prejudice. I can't have uh, marked, a marked deck of cards here. Uh, so I, I figured it is arbitrary, and uh, I don't see any reason to stick with it. Now, I still thought that there, that there was some reason for worship. And here's where the, the ineffable, the, the numinous, the holy, uh, and all that stuff come in. These are abstractions that theologians and philosophers of religion have come up with. Uh, what they're trying to do is to say, before you rationalize it into a God concept, where you say, well, God is like this, God has those attributes, this is what God would do, he wouldn't do that, etc., etc. What is it that moves people to try to construct a God concept? It is some kind of overwhelming experience of the other, some kind of eternal uh, um uh, sense of of uh, that which is everything. It is realer than you. It it is the source of your reality because you feel like a gnat 
uh, uh, flee flotsam and jetsam before it, as Isaiah says. Uh, uh, and uh, you sense the presence of some overpowering greatness. Now, you may then start to theologize and say, well, I bet this being at some point created the world and wonder if this might be his name and uh, has he given laws and the founders of society wishing to exalt certain fundamental laws for the society to make them unquestionable will say you know uh, god brahma uh, allah whatever has given these laws to a revealer moses manu uh, hammurabi whatever and uh, so we better keep them, uh, and that uh, has real utility. So you can see various factors that cause religions to be elaborated, but nobody would do this. Rudolf Otto and uh, Marcia Eliadi and Paul Tillich and others would say, if certain people had not stumbled upon these shocking, overwhelming uh, experiences in certain places, which become holy places, uh, and, and, and said, okay, this is... Like, like uh, Jacob uh, unwittingly uh, uses as a prop for his head a, a, a smooth rock out in the middle of nowhere, and, and then he has this uh, astonishing dream where he sees Jehovah at the top of a ladder into heaven, and uh, he wakes up in a cold sweat and says, surely this is the house of God, uh, and I didn't know it. Well, yeah, this I've had some dreams that were pretty numinous and intimidating. Well, people took these as, what do you say, veridical. There must be such a God, uh, whatever you call him, and eventually you you know, the experience gets theorized and people who have not had the experience take the word of those who did and erect religions based on them. Well, uh, I was willing to say, okay, maybe a, a personal God, uh, that's a God concept, is mythical. Maybe the biblical Jehovah is essentially no different from Zeus. Uh, maybe that is mythology, and uh, but that doesn't mean that this basic concept of the holy, the numinous, the mysterium tremendum is not referring to some reality that transcends mundane existence. Uh, it, being itself, as Tillich calls it, well, actually so did Aquinas, uh, and uh, so our our. Worship is the awe we properly feel uh, at the presence of this holiness. You don't want to say a person necessarily, but but this this holiness, and uh, or you might whittle it away more. And I guess I did to say, well, how do I know this is more than an experience? I guess I don't. But uh, it seems to be a wholesome experience. It's pro it's part of the of the mind, but it's a good part, an important one. So you don't have to beg the question of whether there is a God or not. Uh, you you experience 
the holy dreams, visions, uh, worship, whatever, and that's a good thing. Uh, in a way, it's like uh, play acting, uh, how uh, what Peter Berger calls a finite province of meaning. It establishes this bubble of reality and experience while you're watching some great film or drama that is moving and transformative. Um, when the lights come up and you leave the theater, you don't really believe that uh, Hamlet or King Arthur or whoever uh, existed doesn't matter. It's the story that was transformative because it was a symbol somehow connecting you with the holy or fostering or fomenting or facilitating an experience, whether there, quote, is, unquote, anything out there or not. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and uh, I guess I still think that is, is um, probably valid. In fact, I know militant atheists who say that, that uh, when they were doing uh, martial arts, uh, th there were meditative practices that gave them transcendent experiences, but they didn't infer from that that there are, you know, unseen supernatural beings. So I go along with that, uh, th that there is a sense in which religiosity uh, is is uh, wholesome and and so forth without there being God, but of course theology looks a lot different. Um, Schleiermacher felt that yes, it is basically a kind of experience, but surely we can extrapolate from that. What would cause such an experience? Maybe you can, maybe not. I tend to to go along with uh, Don Cupid and others saying it's really just phenomenological, that is, the phenomena, the appearances, what you're seeming to, 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 to experience, whether there's anything to it or not. If you have a nightmare that frightens you, you're relieved to wake up, but you did have the experience uh, that frightened you. It just was in your mind, uh, and so on. Same thing with all sorts of visions. Oh, see, you, you're referring also to the theodicy thing with uh, God's ruthlessness. This comes into great greatest focus with Calvinism, as you say, because Calvinism, well, depends on which kind you are, a pre-lapsarian, uh, or as they would say, a super-lapsarian or an infra-lapsarian. Did God predestine everything, including the fall of Adam and Eve? Or once that happened, did he predestine who would be saved and who would be damned? Uh, but it's uh, it, it does have God, you know, sending people to hell. I remember a guy, a Calvinist preacher, who <laughs> was giving a sermon at a wedding, and he's talking about the torments of the damned in hell. And he said, uh, how could this be? How could it be eternal? And he said, well, they're resurrected to face the judgment and God must have given them superhuman bodies that are indestructible through hellfire, but are full of extra nerve endings. Uh, what the heck are you just a sadist. You know, if if that's God, what's the difference between God and the devil, especially if he's predestining the poor saps? Uh, it's just, uh, you, you're just not making a coherent claim if you describe God that way and say that God is loving. You, you just It's just gibberish.
Well, what uh, what is Christianity? New Testament professor of mine and Gordon Conwell, J. Ramsey Michaels, said that this is big debate going on back in the late 70s, what is an evangelical, who qualifies? And he said, well, the only answer I can give is if you say or think you are an evangelical, then you are. I mean, there's so many differences. You can't just cut out all the, the ones you disagree with. I'd say the same thing here. Uh, if uh, If you say or think you're a Christian, then you are, unless you are so utterly warping the thing that your beliefs and ethics are antipodal to it, right? And and there are some, like uh, Ku Klux Klan lunatics think they're Christians, but they're just making a mockery of it. You, you It's just meaningless then to say that um, I'm a Christian, and of course I hate these and those races, and I'd like to see them destroyed. Well, what, what are you talking about? Uh, why are why are you using the name Christian? But there's so much leeway short of that that uh, you know if you say yeah Christ is my model or whatever a liberal or conservative I'd say well, yeah you're you're a Christian uh, you could always say well only God knows the heart yeah I suppose so uh, but uh, you know even admitting that we don't what do you want to use the word for? It's it's a label. You might say some people deserve it, some are making a mockery of it, but that's a different issue. When you're saying, can we define it? We're saying, from what we see, who uh, is, is able to claim it? Um, <laughs> uh, well, I eventually lost the, the belief that there was any holiness or mysterium tremendum that existed outside of our experience. Uh, but I, I do think that, as Cupid says, uh, God makes, God exists within religion as numbers exist within mathematics. Uh, God is not a physically real being uh, orbiting the earth like the moon. God is an aspect of uh, religious experience. That's pretty good, I think. Oh, let's see, what else have I not blathered on about in this? Oh, yeah, uh, how'd, uh, about afterlife? Yeah, there's there's no consistent answer in, in the Bible on that. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have a couple of competing ideas. One of them is that the dead are just dead. They return to dust, and uh, there is no afterlife, good or bad pleasant or unpleasant, and then you, you begin to hear uh, the Babylonian idea of Sheol, a kind of shadowy, vague netherworld that is no fun. You're not actually being tormented and tortured. There's no demons there with pitchforks, but, oh man, what a drag this is. A uh, dusty, dark city from which uh, probably no cable TV there, and and uh, you're never getting out. God he has even forgotten about you according to certain passages in the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, then we start getting uh, glimpses of the idea in very late Old Testament writings 
like parts of Isaiah and Daniel that say that the righteous dead, uh, at least of Israel, will rise, especially martyrs. Uh, their their lives that they were cheated out of will will be given back to them, and uh, so the the idea of a resurrection begins to to come about in the New Testament. You have some documents like the Book of Revelation and Luke and Acts that promote the idea of a double resurrection that the righteous and the wicked will rise to face appropriate uh, judgments. But uh, in the Pauline epistles, there is no mention of any hell. I mean. Any of them, uh, from Romans to uh, Philemon, uh, throwing in the pastorals and everything else, there is never any mention of hell. Uh, it does speak of the flaming fires of judgment that the bad guys will experience at the second coming, but that's not an ongoing thing like in Revelation, where it says the smoke of their torment goes up before God and the Lamb, day and night, forever and ever. Nah. Um... Uh, so uh, you, you have different ideas that accumulate over centuries. Uh, and the idea of a fiery hell, by the way, seems to have entered the Middle East from uh, the teaching of a bunch of neo-Pythagorean philosophers who spread out across the eastern Mediterranean, Mediterranean from uh, uh, Sicily, where they have all kinds of volcanic uh, eruptions and uh, hell mouths and stuff, uh, fumaroles and lava pits. And they figured, well, that's those are openings to underground. I guess that must be hell and the bad guys must be going there. I mean, when you can trace the creation and growth of a belief, that kind of uh, saps it of any real plausibility, right? It's just... Uh, you're reading Superman comics, and they keep changing the origin. Well, as if you didn't know already, that kind of <laughs> destroys the idea that you were reading the real biography of somebody, right? And uh, so there's uh, – and, and the question is, well, maybe it was progressive revelation. Maybe uh, God uh, just revealed hell later on. What, you mean he was sending people in the Old Testament to hell without even warning them there was? Well, get out of here. It, it just seems ridiculous. Uh, there's nothing to worry about there. The, what we ought to worry about is, are we making our lives here and now a living hell? Because plenty of people are, right? Uh, okay, um, is is there annihilationism? Yeah, I think so. In the, because in the Pauline literature, the dead are apparently just left to rot. Right? There's um, there's uh, the the idea that the dead are asleep, uh, but uh, once the resurrection comes about, it says of each in his turn, Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, and then those who belong to him, and then he yields up the kingdom to his father. Hey, wait a minute, what about the unrighteous? <laughs> They're just out of it. There's, there's no nothing, no future for them. Oh boy, what, what a pain. So there's all kinds of ideas. There was no settled orthodoxy. Universalism, yeah, that is in there, uh, in Colossians and First Corinthians. As all died in Adam, all will uh, be saved uh, through Christ, uh, and uh, it's kind of hard to get out of that. There, there seem to be universalist writers in the in the New Testament. Plus, there's the simple fact I like to point out. Uh, if if you're a Christian and you say Jesus died to save the human race. 
don't you think it worked? I mean, what, what did he just try to save it with limited success? I mean, you talk about the, the adequacy of the atonement, something that's really the holy ark for Christian theology. You mean it didn't work? Uh, that's, if that isn't injecting good works for salvation that you're doing, what was Jesus like, um, uh, oh, uh, Jonas Salk, who invented a way not to get polio, uh, or did he actually eradicate it? That's, that's the idea. Jesus didn't just make it possible to be saved. He saved everybody, right? Well, that seemed, would seem to lead inevitably to universalism, but some folks don't see it. Now, how did Christianity get off the ground if there was no historical Jesus? Actually, uh, no problem, in my opinion. In the Old Testament and in other ancient Near Eastern religions uh, and in Hellenistic religions and Central Asian religions for a long, and in Egypt for a long, long time, even back into the Old Testament, you find uh, beliefs in a redeeming God who dies and rises from the dead. And one worships this God, ritually mourning his death and rejoicing a few days or sometimes a few months later at his resurrection. And this is almost always tied in with the cycles of the season, right? He, he's a symbol for vegetation dying and then coming back. Uh, or possibly the sun, right? The sun, the days grow shorter, the sun is dying, but then they start getting longer again, and it's the rebirth of the sun. You, you have all that kind of stuff that probably led to this, and uh, eventually they become initiation religions or mystery religions where you undergo some sacrament uh, that... Um, ties you to the Savior so that uh, in your ritual reenactment of his saving death, you are now part of him and you are dying and rising, which is what baptism obviously is, right? Explicitly in the New Testament. Okay, uh, um, so th I think that uh, the, the dying and resurrecting Savior, Jesus, was simply one of these. Uh, maybe simply the dying and rising Jehovah, who is intimated in the Old Testament here and there. Uh, and uh, just like Marduk and the other dying and rising gods in the neighborhood. And uh, the, the, also the Gnostics had the idea of a cosmic redeemer who was put to death in the heavens by evil demons and so on, but that eventually he sort of returned in spiritual form to awaken the righteous uh, to salvation and, uh, and, and so forth. And so there's a spiritual resurrection. It's sort of another version of the same thing. So the er earliest Christians would not have believed in a historical Jesus Christ, but they probably started believing in one when it became advantageous for this or that Christian sect to claim a historical founder uh, and to make the Savior into that. Oh, yes, Jesus, the anointed one, appeared among us a couple of generations ago, and uh, he appointed teachers who taught others, who taught others, who taught us, uh, 
to uh, teach the true doctrine, so we have it from the horse's mouth. But those of you that just are dependent on visions of, of the Savior, you, you could just be hallucinating. You don't agree among yourselves uh, anyway, but we've got the thing staked in the ground. We've got it definitively because we have a founder who was the divine savior. And uh, some Gnostics began to say, yeah, that's not bad. Okay, he was on earth, kind of didn't really have a physical body, but it looked like it. And he taught the, the disciples, but in secret. And that's what they passed on to us. So this is how I think uh, Jesus became a historical entity, though in fact he was not. Uh, now, why, how they get him a historical life? Uh, Frank Zindler wrote an article once called How Jesus Got a Life. This is where rewriting the Old Testament into the Gospels comes in, because uh, they were using an esoteric means of interpretation on the the scriptures, because a lot of these early Christians were Jews uh, of one kind or another, and interpreted the Old Testament, the scriptures, symbolically, and they began to uh, figure, well, maybe the Savior did appear it now seems that he did. Is it possible this was predicted, but we somehow didn't notice it at the time? And then they found all these passages where uh, things taken out of context could be cobbled together, uh, sayings of various rabbis or philosophers or quotes from the Old Testament could be attributed to this Jesus once he was historicized as a historical teacher. And uh, so the, uh, the, the old Bible became became fodder for writing a new one. And uh, this would be why the New Testament writers do not really speak of uh, the Jesus of the Gospels. Jesus is never said in the epistles to have been a miracle worker, not even a teacher. There's a couple of passages often thought to be quotes from him, but I don't think they're even interpreting that correctly. I think they're talking about revelations from the heavenly Christ. We know they are sometimes. It's explicit. Uh, and uh, there's, there's gospel-like stuff, like in Romans chapter 12 or the epistle of James, but they don't say they're quoting Jesus. Seems more likely to me that the, the gospel-like material in the epistles was rewritten and attributed to Jesus in later documents. So I personally find it uh, difficult to come up with any good evidence that there was a historical Jesus. Of course, we can't know. You know, we can't get in a time machine and find out. But it seems to me the more likely uh, uh, hypothesis is that there was no uh, no historical Jesus. But who knows? Um, yeah, okay, well, that's enough for today's Bible Geek. And I've been boring you into a coma uh, for a long time here, I see. But hopefully our producer, Jason Lawson, can get it all up online. And as for incoherence and windbaggery and pedantry, I can't blame Jason for that. Okay, so if you want to donate to PayPal or just directly to me on uh, or to Patreon or donate directly on PayPal, I hate to ask for this kind of stuff, but this is becoming, you know, my life. Livelihood and uh, sure, sure is great to pay the bills. Okay, thanks a bunch. But even if you don't 
Gib, that's all right. I want you to listen anyhow. So see you soon on the next exciting episode of The Bible Geek. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.